a lot of people always ask, so what is, what is my favorite animal to train? And my standard answer has become people. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the season finale, at least for the interview stuff, of the Rasafari Podcast. That's right, y'all. Uh, this is the last episode of season two of the podcast. And for those of you who were here for the end of season one, you know that doesn't really mean much of anything. Um, I'm still planning on continuing doing this every week. Maybe at some point in life I'll take a break, probably. But uh, for now, we're going to just plow right from season two into season three. There will still be Zoo News this Friday. That will be the official end of season two. But this is our last interview for the season. And um, yeah, I just do that because as more and more people find the podcast... I know that it can be intimidating to try to figure out where to start and how to work backwards or forwards or whatever. And so every year of the podcast is marked off by uh, the start of a new season. And uh, yeah, that's what I've been doing. And I guess that's what I'll continue to do, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, so not a big deal, but one of the rules that I have is if I'm going to end a season, even if it doesn't really mean much, I'm going to end it with a bang. And that is why I am ridiculously excited to be bringing you my interview with Wouter Stillard from Behavior 360 and formerly the Animal Training Programs Director at the Columbus Zoo. This episode is all about behavior, but not just how to train behaviors in animals, but also how to train the trainer, how to train humans to be better at behavior. And, and this episode goes deep. Y'all know I love discussing behavior on this podcast, right? Danny Poirier Larson, Colleen Adams, Hillary Hankey, um, Robin Sullivan. Like, we have had some seriously deep discussions about behavior here. And uh, Vouter, he's, he's one of the best. Um, the work that he has done is incredible. And you'll hear me talk a lot about how I kind of came to know of him in the episode. Um, and the best part about this is that I, I met him through Zoe, because Zoe is so obsessed with behavior that even though she was working as a vet intern at the Columbus Zoo, she asked for a day away from the vet hospital to work behavior stuff with Vouter. And I just think that's so cool. And he was awesome. And it was wonderful. And uh, that eventually led to him being on the podcast. And the funny thing about this to me, you know, I've had some some experiences on this podcast that are just weird. There's there's a name that you hear, and it's almost like a celebrity in this industry. And then you have this weird experience. Well, Vouter was no different. Um, we weren't really sure where to do the interview, and Zoe and I, along with our dog Paradiddle, were hanging out in Columbus at our hotel when it worked out. So, uh, Vouter just 
came to our room. And uh, it was very interesting having this person who we have such great respect for and who has such a great name in the industry just come up to the hotel room and, and hang out. And uh, he got to meet Paradiddle. Uh, and Perry was very jumpy uh, in a good way, like loving jumpy. Uh, not that that's necessarily a good way, but you know what I mean? She wasn't scared. Sometimes people say jumpy, meaning scared. Anyway, and she kind of jumped on him. And it was so funny because he just, he helped her to the ground and he just goes, okay, let's stay on the ground. All the best things happen on the ground and um it was just it was hilarious uh especially when you hear his accent you'll know how truly funny that was it was just a really cool moment um and so yeah i'm really excited to share this with you you're going to hear about some really cool ambassador animals but you're just going to hear a whole lot of cool training stuff including when zoe takes over the interview and they go deep on behavior uh I'm really looking forward to sharing that with y'all. This is a different and really cool episode. So real quick, make sure you're following along at Ross Safari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Ross Safari pod on TikTok. And um, make sure you hit subscribe and rate and review and all that good stuff. But this is a long and really good interview. So let's just uh, shut up on this intro here and get right to it. Here is my interview with Vouter Stillard from Behavior 360. All right. So uh, why don't we start off by you telling me who you are and uh, a little bit about your company. Hi, I am uh, Vauda Stillard. I'm uh, really the owner of Behavior 360, which I just started. Um, it's an animal training company, but it really is um, training the trainers. So I train the animal trainers to train the animals and set up behavior programs in zoos to get the industry standard up and running. And really, my interest is in, in teaching people how to teach animals all kinds of behaviors. One, to connect to your audience, to get people really excited about the animals themselves and how do we make that connection in a zoo, zoo much better. And same thing with training people. Like I think we need to do a better job at teaching our staff how to train animals more consistently and really keeping that behavior, uh, the science of behavior change, the, the underlying way to teach. Cool. I love that. And um, it's... It's so interesting to me that you started this specific uh, company with this specific target because um, – so you were at the Columbus Zoo when mm -hmm. I first heard of you and that was because Zoe was there as an intern mm -hmm. and um, you were the behavior guru there. I think was your official title. <laughs> <laughs> Not guru. I think, it, I think it was animal programs training director. Cool. So, yeah, Very good. Yeah. 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 Behavior yeah. guru. I'm going with that. <laughs> and, um, and she was really excited uh, when she heard how good you were and and then got to spend a day with you, despite being there for veterinary stuff, mm -hmm. um, and was talking about how she could tell that you were having an impact on the people there. Mm -hmm. And then as I started coming to visit, and I would wander around AEV, I always – I ask – who every animal is. I talk to every keeper I can, tell them about the podcast, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, when I asked, oh, so you you, you work for Vout or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, every single person on their own brought mm -hmm. up that the main impact that you'd had on them – was mm -hmm. on them, not on the animals, and how they are growing as trainers mm -hmm. because of you. I thought that was amazing. And then the next time that I actually talked to you, you were starting your own company where you were doing that. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, well, that's yeah. Good. I, a lot of people always ask, so what is what is my favorite animal to train? And my standard answer has become people. Wow, okay. because of that, like because I think you can be so powerful in teaching people how to train animals well. 
to where if we can get everybody's standards of training up and everybody's skill level up, that improves welfare for not only them, the person doing the training, because they get more efficient, they get their work done better, but the animal's welfare goes way up too because we're asking, we're working on that partnership between the animal and, and us, really, our care, the caregiver. And so if we can up that and get people excited about their jobs and, you know, get animals really looking forward to our interactions, can't, can't beat that. It's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Um, so how did this all begin for you? Like, tell me about early life and connection with animals and any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Wow. That's, that goes way back. My name, obviously, W-O-U-T-E-R, shows that I'm from Holland. Yes. And I was born and raised. So I was 21 when I came to the United States. And I think my real connection with animals started in Holland. Okay. When I ended up, I remember vividly that I was walking on the beach with my dad. And there was this oil spilled bird on the beach and it was in the surf and it was just, you know, I had no, I had seen David Attenborough on TV and that's about the connection I had with nature. I liked nature stuff, but you know, that was TV was really what I was looking for, looking at. And then here's this bird, didn't know what to do with it. I think I threw my jacket on it, kind of wrapped it over and then... We went to the bird rehab center and I put it in a box and I told, you know, then you write a little note that says, okay, well, this is where he was found and all that stuff. And I called him the next day and I went, hey, how, how is this guy doing? And they're like, oh, let me look. Oh, yeah, he's still with us. He's doing this and this and this. And I go, well, I'm kind of interested. Could I come watch? And she says, Karina said, I ended up working with her for a long, long time. <laughs> she said, no, come and see. So we would end up, I drove out there, or actually rode my little bike. Wrote, wrote it out there and saw the animals and she was super excited about showing um, showing me the animals. And while I was there, there was a next bird that came in. So she goes, oh, could you write the information down? And so while she was working with the bird, I was writing down information. By the end of the day, I was taking in birds and all that stuff. <laughs> I was like, can I come back tomorrow? So yeah, I ended up, I was 14 back then and, and raising baby birds in the summer and the wintertime is really oil spilled birds and really liked working on a team, really liked working in the rehab industry. And then also started with a, f- a friend of mine, started an animal, uh, animal ambulance. You know, in Holland, not everybody has a car. Mm-hmm. And so when we ha- people have to go to the vet or have to do anything like that, they pay us a little bit of money and we'll be your taxi with your dog or your cat or whatever you have and we'll take you there. And then we would also pick up or if your dog runs away, you know, or you have a dog that you found, we'll come pick him up. We take him to the people that need to find your owners again. And so we ended up spend, uh, charging just a little bit of money. So they would actually uh, be able to help us pay for all the hedgehogs and squirrels and all that stuff that didn't have wallets. Oh, wow. That's yeah. really cool. That was I really like fun. That. And so then I ended up doing um, animal training or animal care, really, in Holland, animal care schooling. And I was really, I was hoping to become a zookeeper, hoping to get into the zoo field because I really was excited about that exotic part of it. And then a friend of mine in the United States, Nancy, she was one of my first host families. Duncan and Nancy were like, this is, man, I was 17, 16, 17 when I came to the U.S. for the first time on an exchange. Wow. And she said, well, there's this program in the United States, in L.A., called Exotic Animal Training and Management, the Eden Program. Yes, which is amazing. And, I was uh, just out in L.A. Oh, cool. And visited um, and did, did an episode from – two episodes from there, actually. That's yeah, awesome. Great, oh, great yeah. Place, great place. I, I, I was just there in December, okay. and it was just – it's such an amazing place to have so many people getting ready to go into the animal training industry and getting just hands-on experience. Yeah, it's really cool. Yep. And I got to meet a badger. So, you hey, know. Hey, there you go. Good day. Good day. Can't, can't, can't beat that. 
Is it still Buttercup up there? Yes, I yeah. believe that is correct. Yeah, oh, I my God. That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Buttercup was there when I was there, which Whoa, is in 98 wow. okay. is when I started. Nice. So, yeah, nice. it's really cool. So, yeah, I did Moore Park. And while I was at Moore Park, I did an internship with Steve Martin, uh, okay. Natural Encounters. Yeah. And so I went to the State Fair of Texas and did an internship there and loved it. Loved the way he worked with the birds. Loved the way he presented his shows to where, you know, the animals were working with you. It was kind of this... He, you know, he wasn't commanding the animals. We so quickly see shows where the person on stage is commanding. Okay, do this, go over there, roll over, and all these things. And Steve had a real natural way to present those shows. And so I started working for his company. Grew through the company from a seasonal all the way to a VP. I did a lot of behavior consulting. So I went to other zoos and helped up, helped set up behavior programs. Kind of what I'm, I'm doing right now right, right. is trying to get those programs rolling to connect people to to the animals get them get the animals more active also get more behaviors that help us with husbandry behaviors medical behaviors all those things and then um, I got hired at the Columbus Zoo after consulting for Steve at Columbus for a couple of um, uh, summers two summers one to do to start up the cheetah run and one to start up a bird show and then Susie said, I would really like for you to come work for me full time so you can help me build out the animal programs department. And that's when I was at Columbus for nine years, I think it was. So, that's awesome. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, you you really did build up the program there. I mean, it's it, it's kind of amazing. And the whole new area, mm-hmm. um, the, the AV, Animal Encounter mm-hmm. Village and stuff, is really good. And, and probably can't think of anywhere – even and I mean I love me the San Diego Zoo, but <laughs> but I can't even think of anything that has that much um, you know connection with ambassador mm-hmm. animals uh, as AEV. So would you talk about that and kind of developing that program and everything? Yeah, you know Adventure Cove, that whole area was kind of put in animal programs, um, and so that kind of gets it a different spin. We immediately started looking at that Jeff Swanigan saying, "Touch the heart to teach the mind." Sean Brehob, my co-director when I was there completely into that and really where the whole team is into finding those moments the really the defining moments it's the moment we just talked about like my defining moment to get really into the animal industry was finding that bird on the beach right right and so that i learned about defining moments at shine mountain zoo beautiful zoo with one of the best training programs i know in in the u.s and they do defining moments, and they want to make sure that every day the keepers have a defining moment. It could be two minutes of your time to just get a guest and make that connection with the guest and really introduce them to your, to your animals and really lay that connection. And so between Touch the Heart and Teach the Mind and defining moments, we really started developing out that whole area with the idea of bringing together all these areas that we had around the zoo. We already were very influential in um, Africa. So we had the the Cheetah Run and the Animal Programs Africa area, which is a beautiful place. And we really used that watering hole as a stage. So we right. did our Cheetah Runs and Aardvark Talks and all that stuff. The staff there has amazing skills. And then promotions did the outreach pieces of it because that's another really important piece that doesn't always get seen that Animal Programs does is the outreach into the community. Right. There's a lot of people that can't come to the zoo 
And so the animal programs department goes out and does school programs and does those kind of programs and really sends a message of caring, not, not even to get people to come through the gate, but really just to get them inspired about animals. And so we build that program up and we had to figure out how to bring four different areas. I think it was four, three or four different areas of where we had animals into one big building. And then, so we brought them all together. We designed in the stage that you guys probably have seen and the tour rooms. So there's two, two really cool tour rooms that are designed to show off animals' natural behaviors that you wouldn't see. And it was building up the staff. You know, my favorite thing is just to teach the staff on how to become better presenters, connect better with your audience, become better trainers. And through that, set up a better program that will get people excited. Even the public aisle that you walk through has hidden entrances and exits to mm -hmm. where, you know, the porcupine can come out. We got skunks running around. We got all kinds of stuff that people don't expect to happen in a zoo. I always try to break that two-dimensional barrier. Right, right. If I can get an animal next to you, over your head, or behind you, then I've done my job. And you've, you, then that opens a mind, right? Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. That's um, one of my favorite things about that area is that, you know, I've gotten I've gotten to have my fair share of cool experiences because of this podcast. Mm -hmm. But I, I know that outside of the podcast, um, you know, you go to a zoo and maybe every once in a while they will bring out a specific ambassador or mm -hmm. whatever. Cool. But I've had three experiences in the last maybe four times that I was at AEV. One was today <laughs> where um, – I was talking to a keeper mm -hmm. and they went and got an animal, mm -hmm. um, which boggled my mind. One time mm -hmm. I was asking about a tamandua, mm -hmm. which was not on exhibit, and they brought out the freaking tamandua. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just summoned a tamandua. Right. Um, you know, and again, it wasn't because, and I can't, I can't stress this enough to anyone listening, it wasn't because of the podcast. Mm -hmm. No one knew that I was somebody, you know, who gets this kind of treatment sometime. Mm -hmm. right. It was just a person who saw that I was interested. Right. Another time, uh, y'all have uh, an echidna there now. Mm -hmm. And and I was like, oh my gosh, I love echidnas. I've only ever really seen one once before. Boom, echidna brought out, mm -hmm. held up directly so I could see it. It was yep. all explained to me. It was, it was amazing. And then twice, I am obsessed with Stevie Fox. And we'll talk <laughs> about Stevie in a minute here. <laughs> yes. um, but twice now that I have been there, Stevie was um, – actually, turns out both times on exhibit but hiding very well. Mm -hmm. And I, I asked Keeper Steph. I was like, oh, I didn't see Stevie. Is Stevie okay? How's Stevie mm -hmm. doing? What's going on? And both times – the keepers made a point of uh, not bringing her out, out, but making sure that she on her own, but was mm -hmm. called and had the the encouragement to come out and come running mm -hmm. out and be her adorable self. And yep. that's amazing. And you don't mm -hmm. get that at zoos ever, really. And it, it's kind of cool. It's it is really cool. And it's it's just a it's shows you how cool the staff is out there. Yeah. You know their their motivation is really to get people connected to animals. And so whenever they have an opportunity like you experience, there is an opportunity to connect somebody to an animal they're asking about. And we've trained the animal or worked it or get you a close encounter. There's many times where people go, I can't see this animal or anything else. And we'll go, oh, let me come over. And while we walk over to the place, we have a really cool connection because we can do so much more than just be like a museum with here's this animal in this exhibit and here's this animal in this exhibit and it looks all natural. But when people really see them active and the relationship between the trainers and the keepers and the um, the animals, I think those things are really cool to see. And it's just really fun to lay those connections and get people an experience that you don't expect. Like you said, you've been many places and it's just to get that awe moment. And it doesn't have to last 20 minutes. It can be a two-minute 
how you doing? This is so cool. And it can, it can change people's minds on how they feel about animals, about the environment. And, you know, next time they're coming back and they, every time you, you learn a little more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It becomes such a special place. Mm-hmm. And that's, yep. that's really important, especially because, you know, we all know there is the anti-captivity crowd. Mm-hmm. And right. um, I, I think it, it, it really helps combat that, which is really cool. Right. And I think, I think that, that there's a lot to say about like, you know, are we doing the right thing in zoos? Right. I think that's a great subject. And I don't think we need to move away from that. I think zoos are leaning in. When you look at animal programs in at the Columbus Zoo, they started their own welfare program. And the welfare program just shows us that we are doing the right thing. Are we do we know the animals in our care are doing well? We can say, yeah, because I feel like I take good care of them. Or can I just start collecting the data? And we start collecting the data, looking at cortisol levels and looking at how these animals are doing and taking more observational data. And that is really just, it's not to say, yes, we're doing, I know we're doing a job. It's just putting the data under it as well to just make sure that we are not being arrogant and just saying we are doing a good job, but we can also show you that we are doing a good job because the data shows it. Yeah, which is yep. one of my favorite little factoids because, mm-hmm. you know, you can argue, is an aardvark happy all day? Uh-huh. But when you can actually look at the, like you said, cortisol levels yeah. and another, you know, base things like that, yeah, it makes a big difference. Right. And it gives you it gives you a place to improve, right? And I think that is why I don't like the word perfect because I, I think there's always a always room for improvement and you got to always keep looking for that. And so there comes a point that you might do a welfare study on an animal and you go, huh. This is not going well, or this is not the 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 this is not good for this animal. So let's change it. And I think that is the the where the money really is in animal welfare is that we can then adjust and look for opportunities to improve the welfare of that animal. And it's not our interpretation, right? It's the animal. It comes from the animal. Welfare is the animal, and not what I think of it. So it's individual to every every animal. We have some macaws that. You know, you think macaws, big flocks, they live together, usually in pairs out in the wild. And we've tried to pair this macaw up with many others. And he just moves away from him, sits up high, has no interest, but is in beautiful condition. And you check out all your other welfare, you know, uh, talking points. Everything else he checks out great. So we've decided, you know what, he's good by himself. But how do we know that? Because you can look at his behavior and you have your welfare assessment and your assessment tool and you can just, you can go by it. And if anybody has any questions, go ahead, go do the assessment and let's see where we can bring it. So yeah, it's really cool. So um, tell me more about the company. Uh, it's it's relatively new, but how's it going and what's it been like starting it and just all the things? Ooh, it's been fun starting it. It's been really interesting to try to, um, you know, get the word out. So I appreciate being on the podcast um, and really starting the company in a time of like it's just after COVID and it's winter time. So not a lot of people are thinking about behavior programs. And a lot of the stuff I do is very it's fairly big projects. So it's almost zoo wide. And that makes it makes this step in really, really big, too. But there's also smaller places that that are that I'm helping. There's a an outreach organization out in um, in California where we're doing some work with their dog and their cheetahs and trying to get that relationship going really well. Um, I'm working with some zoos in Australia where we're doing the, an online training because we can't really, you know, right now I can't go over there. Um, but we're teaching the trainers, their coaches, 
to train. So it's like okay. even three levels removed. So wow. I'm training the coach to train the trainer to train the animal, okay. which is really fun. I've, I've worked with them for a while and they're, they're just a great, great crowd that is ready to, to take it to the next level. So little bits and pieces left and right. And then um, Dr. Susan Friedman, one of my great mentors, gave me a cool opportunity to teach at the, um, uh, the Mid-Ohio Vet Conference that was just here. So I taught for six hours out there, which is a really great opportunity to just connect with vets and techs. And, you know, there's so much of what we do. A lot of people think when you're training animals that you're you're working with the animal to do tricks and, you know, backflips and that kind of stuff. And a lot of the natural behaviors we train are just the animals learning to learn. And then when a medical procedure needs to be done, a lot of times we can train for that as well. So the injection behaviors and the blood draws and the x-rays and the ultrasounds are now just another behavior. So that's a really cool piece of fallout from having a great program animal is that now I need an x-ray. Okay, so when when do you want it, when you need it? Because the staff has a skill to train for that. They don't, there's no difference in training a medical behavior than there is training a um, natural behavior for interpretation. That's cool. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. What, um, so I guess one of the questions that I have is that there are a lot of people who, mm -hmm. who train animals from dog trainers to zoo animal trainers to just pet owners who, mm -hmm. who work on that. Um, what, what gives you the knowledge and the understanding? And I know that you have it because mm -hmm. I have seen the evidence of it, but like, how did you get that? What makes you such an expert in this subject? Wow. I stand on a lot of shoulders of a lot of great mentors. I've had so many people um, that have helped me grow to where I'm at right now. Steve Martin is one of those people. Susan Friedman is a massive one. They're, so Steve is really the art of, of training and Susan's the science next to it. And so while I was working for Natural Encounters, I got a lot of that feedback, that input. And I have a lot of hands-on experience. So I've, I have trained and coached a lot of people to train. It's not me doing it myself. I tend to say that I'm not as good of a trainer in front of the animal as I am if you stand in front of it and I'll coach you through it. Um, and so through all the experiences with Natural Encounters, the experiences with the Columbus Zoo, all the programs you think about, um, Animal Encounters, like that we moved – the um, animal programs department, really from the old school, you know, hold an animal and this is what it is, to putting an animal on the ground or, you know, asking an animal to come out and walking with you and doing natural behaviors. We really took it into the next century. And I think that is where we're all going. And the cool thing about having animals trained for natural behaviors is that the questions changed, right? When we held an animal in front of us, people would ask the questions, oh, cool, how cool is your job? How do I get your job? Your job sounds so amazing. And if you put that penguin next to you on the ground and it walks around, the questions go to, who is that? What is he doing? What does he eat? That looks so cool. Those questions are the questions we really want. So I think my experience working in different zoos, getting a lot of different programs up, not only the training piece of it, but also the teaching of people parts of it, and also the connecting with the audience. I've done a lot of programs to get people interested in animals. And it's not 20-minute shows, even though we've done those too, but it could be as much as the capybara walk or, you know, a flamingo <laughs> flamingo walks or whatever whatever oh, we can train. the capy walk. That was so entertaining the mm -hmm. first time I saw that. That was... Yeah, we saw one of the early ones. <laughs> yeah, we saw when it was still like... 
yep. you know, in training. And, uh-huh. and um, one of them did not do as well as the mm-hmm. others, but that's okay. That right. Figured it out in the end. Just kind of yep. The yeah. Way. Isn't it? But but I think that's the cool. <laughs> that's the cool thing about training, right? It also shows that we're not all the same. And every animal learns on their own in on their own accord. So sometimes when some some animals don't do what they don't not supposed to do, that's fine. Even though I I even balk at me saying supposed to. Like animals behave, right? right. Behavior is behavior, and it's 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 signaled by the environment. And so the animal not doing it, river not coming straight in, that doesn't mean that river's gonna get punished or anything else. It just means that when he gets in, he gets a treat. Because if I want to teach him to be slow, I'd better give him one out there when he's mucking about. <laughs> and usually he's just going other places. Yeah. And then how do I set up the staff immediately goes, their mind goes, okay, how do I set up River next time? Was this a fluke? Was this not a fluke? Or is this something we like? Because from a guest experience standpoint, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. Not about the two that did great. You're talking about river that didn't do great. So can I use that next time to where I just give river a little bit of food in this corner every day? And everybody goes, oh, there goes river. (laughs) And everybody knows river and everybody knows it's a capybara. And pretty soon I have a really cool vessel, that whole touch the heart to teach the mind piece. It's really cool that we can we can set that up to where people really have that connection. So yeah, I think we got away from the question. I don't know where we are. Uh, that's okay. Yeah. This is a conversation, and that's <laughs> yeah. that's how my brain works all the time. So yeah, no, that's that that makes a lot of sense. So the the original question was just about your expertise, mm-hmm. and and you answered it very well. You, okay, you stand on the shoulders of of those that came before you, yeah. and are now raising up a new generation on your shoulders, which right. is pretty great. And and that's that's awesome. Yep. I that. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love that that next generation to have. Like I think that's one of the other reasons I started a company is is I think we have behavior programs in zoos but what's the next level of it i think there's a lot of people that that do great work in training but there's not really any consistency in it and i think if we can set up i look at great programs like the animal programs department in columbus and cheyenne mountain zoo what do they have in common it's it's the science of behavior change is number one and then they have staff that they can build on and they're they laying bricks and then moving bricks on top there's many programs out there that I see that have somewhat of a layer and it's kind of going on, but I think we can take the step and build stronger behavior programs to get more any behavior out there. Makes sense. Yeah. Do you think that it would make sense um, at maybe a, let's say like at an AZA level mm-hmm. to kind of codify um, training and behaviors and expectations with that kind of thing. One thing that I encounter a lot is, you know, so I've been to, I think, over 170 facilities by this Mm -hmm. point in time. And um, I I keep up with a lot of animals now that I I knew at one facility and then they go to another one or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of the expectations are different. And there's a lot of retraining and a lot of, um, well, this is how we do things here. We're going to train it. Mm-hmm. And always in a positive way. Like you said, it's never like a punishment. It's not, but do you think it would make sense to have a kind of, um, like I said, like a codified, you know, this is how, mm-hmm. anim- what animals should be trained for? Or do you think it should be left to the individual facilities? Oh, that's a great question. I think what I see is is that we need to first raise the bar on training itself. I think once we start, there's this there's this great saying out there that there's there, the the one thing that two trainers can uh, agree on is that a third trainer really is not that good, right? <laughs> and I think 
I think if we all start looking at our own work with our own individual animals and how we get there based on the science of behavior change, and we set up some programs that have more of a drive through the science and not so much... Um, a lot of times we try to sell, you know, I'm not trying to sell Vouter's way of training or Steve's not trying to sell Steve's way of training or Susan. We're all tied into the science of behavior change. And so we need to establish some baseline there that is about, you know, your ABCs, your antecedents, behavior consequences, your reinforcers, your punishments, your antecedent arrangement, and how are we going to use all these tools as, like targeting and all those things. And then... We can read and we can do all that stuff. The next step that I think is the most important is to teach each other how to do it, how to use it. Because a lot of times we dump all this information, we give it to somebody to do, and nobody's there coaching you. Maybe your co-trainer is with you, but there's not somebody with 10 years, 15 years experience that can not have you make the same mistakes. So a lot of times what happens is somebody gets trained by somebody that has been there five years, that made some mistakes themselves, doesn't really learn from it. And so we get into this vicious circle to where we make the same mistakes again. That person stays there five years, then hands his behavior over. It's really cool, but we don't really build on anything. I think if we can get people in zoos, behavior managers that run it, like the zoos, uh, zoos Victoria, have behavior managers. And you see that program starting to build because there's consistency from a behavior standpoint. Same thing with Cheyenne Mountain. They're building up because they have a behavior manager that keeps the language consistent, keeps the training consistent, keeps the, the level of training up. So I think instead of having to go, you have to train these behaviors with these animals, I think that'd be great. But I think it's more important to look at how are we going to train it? What If I can get your skill up in animal training, then it doesn't matter. If you can fill in that blank all the time. You can go, oh, we need a blood draw. We need this, this, and this, and this. If I can teach you 100% of, of how to train it well, then you go, okay, what next behavior do you need? And I think that's more important than going, well, you need to have – XYZ on this animal. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yep. Cool. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and I know that the training world in general, um, despite me saying that there are a lot of people doing it, mm -hmm. the actual upper level training world is like mm -hmm. a really small world. And, and there's some controversy going on in it right now and stuff. Mm -hmm. and we're not going to touch on that. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm just curious if you think that's a, a positive thing, a negative thing. Um, you know, what is what is the training world like in your eyes? Um I, I think I th and I think the thing about the controversy is that what I what I don't like about it is that it takes away from time of training and good discussions and talking about good training. So I think if everybody focuses on their own way to train, I think it's beautiful. I think if we can just focus on teaching the next level, the next you know generation coming up, if we can teach them, that'd be awesome. If we can focus on that, that'd be the greatest thing for me. And I think that there is a really small group of people there. You know, you think about the Tim Sullivans and the Ken Ramirez and Steve and Barb and Susan, and there's a lot of other people out there that are great trainers. But it always becomes this, like, evaluation of each other. Instead of just going, look how cool, we, how cool the behaviors are that we did and how we trained and how we got there. So I think it takes away from what we can do if we start doing that whole like, well, you train wrong and I'm training right, or if you do it his way, it's not going to work. I'm all about, I'm going to focus on what I do and what I know works. 
and I'm going to share that as much as I can. And then I think in the end, everything will come out with, what do you call that? The dishwasher? Dish, dishwater? Whatever they yeah, do. Yeah. You have a saying in, in the United States, I think. You know, it comes out in the wash. Yeah, I think that's what it is. There it is. I found it. Yeah, it's in there. It's in there. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, you could have been anywhere in the world tonight, but you are here with us on this podcast. Here comes the doctor. You know her, you love her, I've had her on before. Here comes the editor. I needed help on this one, so I asked her for some more. Here comes the doctor. A really smart person, obsessed with behavior. Here comes the editor. So put your hands together for... Dr. Zoe Wesley Gross. Like this? Closer? Louder? Yeah, louder. Louder? There you go. Okay. I don't speaking loudly is not really my my skill set and also I'm too short. Is yeah. that okay? Okay. Um first question that I have is mm-hmm. you talked a little bit you've mentioned several times like the science of behavior change mm-hmm. um and I kind of have an idea of what that is but I mm-hmm. think for John's audience it would be helpful to just have a quick summary of like what are the main bullet points that you're talking about when you're referencing that. Wow, that's cool. I would yeah. tell him I would tell him to get the book by Paul Chance, Learning yeah. and Behavior. <laughs> Learning and Behavior is is the Bible I go to. It's Paul wrote the book a long time ago, but it's it is starting, you know, it's it's operant conditioning, it's classical conditioning. So mm-hmm. it's your Pavlovian learning and it's your operant, it's your Skinner, your Skinnerian really learning. And then when we talk about the smallest unit of behavior in behavior change is your ABCs. Mm-hmm. The B being behavior, which we always describe in observable terms, make sure that everybody knows exactly what it is and terms I can explain to you. So instead of saying the animal is aggressive, we say, well, the animal has got his ears back, he's foaming at the mouth, at his teeth, and he's making a growling sound, right? That's describing really what it is. So we describe behavior, be in the middle really well. And then antecedents are anything that happens before the behavior that can influence that behavior. And so that's, you know, related to the behavior occurring. And so that's more like your cues, your prompts, those things. And you got distant antecedents, you know, your history, and you got uh, motivating operations. And so that has to do with, you know, your... um, you know, how, how much how much motivation you have. Have you had, it's like working at 11 o'clock, have you had breakfast yet? You're going to be a little more motivated. Or did you get a bunch of food already before and you're going to be less motivated? So there's motivating operations, establishing and abolishing. We can go way further into that. But yeah. so there's, and then your consequences. So your consequences is really what's going to lead the behavior along. Consequences, anything that happens after the behavior that's functionally related to the behavior occurring. And so... It can be reinforcers, which increase behavior, and punishers that decrease behavior. And it's about how to use that smallest unit of behavior. So as a trainer, I can arrange the antecedents so I can set up the environment to where an animal can only go one direction. And that's antecedent arrangement. So now he goes to the left because I put a log in the way, and so he can't go to the right. So antecedent arrangement, that's a very simplistic way to talk about it. Motivations in there, all those other things fall in there. And then consequences, what happens right after the behavior, that's where we can influence it by giving an animal a treat or... Um, you know, when you think about punishment, you know, you, it's, a, it's a, a pull on a choke chain when the animal doesn't do it right. And um, so there's, that's a consequence arrangement. And then with that comes a whole set of tools that we use, which could is like baiting, using a target pole, um, using bridging stimuli, a clicker, a whistle. You've seen it all. So all those tools that we use to create an environment that the animal is going to be successful in 
is really what what we focus on. And then the science backs that up. You know, when we when I use a clicker, I'm not going to go far into. Uh, well, clickers have this, you know, our our secondary reinforcer because they're backed up by another reinforcer and all that. We're not going to go into the depth of it. But when we're teaching, we use it. And then as soon as we're using it, then we want to find out why it's working or why it's not working. And we go back to the science because there's so much, you know, peer-reviewed information out there that is backing up what we're doing. So it doesn't become this, you know, that we try to lift the cultural fog and lift all that stuff off so we can really see what's out there. And you see that in the medical field too, probably. So, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. exactly. Um, kind of a follow-up to that. I, this makes me nervous. Um, so you mentioned a little bit as part of that, like the four quadrants of training, like mm-hmm. positive punishment, negative punishment, positive um, mm-hmm. reinforcement, negative reinforcement. And I know in general, um, I feel like people have the general idea like, yay, positive reinforcement, no uh-huh. punishment. Like that's kind of what people who don't know much about it are thinking when they think of like good trainers that they like versus bad trainers they maybe don't like as much and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, I've definitely talked to some people who are like totally positive reinforcement. You shouldn't do anything else. I've talked to other people that are more like it's just a balanced approach and you kind of use things as you can, always with the goal being to reduce stress on the animal as much as possible and keep it a positive experience overall. Mm -hmm. But um, I was wondering about your thoughts on that, if there is a place for positive punishment or negative punishment in training behaviors Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Right. That's a great, great question. It's time for Interrupting. 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 <sighs> Zoe. Mm. Hi. I asked to interrupt to give a little bit of background on the four quadrants of operant conditioning, just so that everybody's on the same page about that. So operant conditioning um, is the process by which behavior is either um, increased in frequency or strength through reinforcement or punishment. Um, And the four quadrants that we typically think about are um, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, and negative punishment. Um, The positive and negative parts of those refer to whether something is added or taken away. So if it's positive, it means you're adding something for the animal or whoever's being trained. The negative means that you're taking something away. And then the um, reinforcement and punishment means whether you're trying to increase that frequency of the behavior or decrease the frequency of the behavior or the strength of the behavior. Um, So typically when we're talking about uh, training, a lot of people know about positive reinforcement-based training. And the classic example of that is, you know, feeding treats to encourage a behavior. So using food as a reward and doing positive reinforcement training. Um, The negative reinforcement is when you're taking something away that an animal doesn't like as a reinforcer. So you're taking something away that they're not enjoying so that you're encouraging the behavior to occur more. The, um, Positive punishment is, we talk a little bit about this, um, things like choke collars or shock collars where you're introducing something that um, is going to decrease the frequency of the behavior um, because it's aversive in some way. And then um, negative punishment is when you're taking something away 
um, that the animal or whoever likes. So um, they are going to try to get that back. So the classic example of that one is a lot of animals really like attention from their people. So you can do um, a, a negative punishment by taking away that attention to an to discourage whatever behavior it is that you don't want to see more of. So um, that's just kind of some background so you have an idea of what we're talking about here, and we can go back to Vowder's answer. I think that is another skill, and I'm glad you brought it up, that a good animal trainer has. Yeah. Because there's a sliding bar on the use of all those, and you go for, you look for the least intrusive, most effective way of training, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Going back to the people I stand on their shoulders, Susan Friedman wrote a beautiful paper on the um, it is it is the an hierarchy of least intrusive, most positive ways of training. Yeah, and it starts at antecedent arrangement or medical, you know, medical and health, and making mm-hmm. sure the animal is healthy. And you go up and down the hierarchy, and at the top, the last thing we'll ever look at is positive punishment. Mm-hmm. So, and what it's suggesting is we can use any of these. But we have to do it systematically, and we have to make sure we use the least intrusive. Yeah. Because we have to. We're we're welfare based, right? So we have to make sure we can use these ways more more effectively. So before I go to negative reinforcement, I'm going to try positive reinforcement first. Yeah. And positive reinforcement, like you said, we all think it's skipping to school and it's so fun and I'm eating candy, yeah. and it really is. It's it's reinforcement because it's a procedure that increases behavior. Right, yeah. it comes after behavior. That's only the only reason it's called reinforcement is because it increases or maintains behavior, and it's positive just because it's added. Something's yeah. added to the environment, so it's not even when you hear negative reinforcement. That's not because it's it's sad and it's it's not great. It's just because something got taken out of the environment. Because science, you know, I imagine these guys sitting around, sitting in their labs going, huh, what are we going to call this? I added something to the environment. And the mathematician goes in, come, walks in and goes, hey, we already have a word for adding. It's, it's positive, you know? Yeah. <laughs> one, you know, one plus one. Oh, got it. Well, we'll use the same words. And so I think that is where, and that's me making up that story, of course. That, <laughs> I hope that happened because that'd be really cool. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know. But I imagine so, – so, so there were already words to use. And so I think the most important thing we can do is educate ourselves on what it is and when we're using it and how we're using it. Am I using an aversive? Am I using something the animal's trying to move away from? Am I using punishment? Can I use reinforcement first? You know, constantly going back and forth, making sure you use the least intrusive, most, most effective. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we'll never use punishment. Right. I think the other piece about punishment is we th- we think it's the bad, the, the worst of the worst. Right. It's yeah. blood everywhere. And that's what we might what imagine. Punishment is as simple as you walking up to a door that says pull on it and you push on it. Right. You push on that door and all of a sudden it doesn't open. Your behavior of pushing gets punished. It decreases and your behavior of pulling increases. Mm-hmm. So pulling will get reinforced by the door opening. Next time you walk up to that door, your your behavior of pushing has decreased. So there's punishment at play. Yeah. Nobody got hurt, but there's still a decrease in behavior. And so when you look at the situations that way, I think if we educate ourselves on how to look at what we're using and how we're using it and then find the least intrusive way, don't jump to the top. Don't use, don't use punishment immediately, but there might be a way to, to, to get that point. I think as soon as we get to talking about when to use punishment, all that stuff, I go back to my mentors. I go back to the people that have been there, how to use it well. If we use it, how do you use it well? 
Well, how do how do we use punishment well? Yeah. Right? That's a great question to ask yeah. if we need to get there. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that idea of kind of the sliding scale and that there mm-hmm. is a time when you can use it, but trying to go to like positive reinforcement first because you want to kind of encourage that behavior. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the specifics, but I think there's been science too that positive reinforcement is in general more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of going there first, but then if it's not working for whatever reason or there isn't a way to set up the situation so that you can use mm-hmm. it, um, considering your other options right. too. And effectiveness is everything to do with, with the animal, right? Yeah. And not only the animal in our instance, it's the animal in the environment and we're in that environment. Yeah. Right. And so we're the ones that can move that scale up and down. And mm-hmm. sometimes we see trainers with skills that are not as honed, don't have a lot of mentors around them, will be able to jump to punishment quickly because it reinforces the punisher, right? There's a lot of problems with punishment. Yeah. So it reinforces the punisher because behavior is decreasing by definition. And that's what you want to see. So, whoa, I'm great. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and so it's, it, it is about surrounding yourself with people that, and, and creating an environment that feedback's great in. Yeah. And then there is so much stuff out there that, and I, I like I said, Susan's paper is, and it, it comes with a graph that shows you mm-hmm. which steps to take. Yeah. And I think I need to talk to her about adding a little phone booth. I've been <laughs> milling this about since I taught about it last and she helped me with it. Is to, it's, it's a little road and it comes with a speed bump. Mm-hmm. The, before you go to, I think it's uh, DRI, DRO, negative, and you know, and so yeah. you get there, and so slowly but surely you get a speed bump, and then you go up higher, and there's a stop sign and a speed bump. So every time you go further up the scale where the, the aversiveness starts, right, she starts, uh, there's s- slowdown moments, and I think there needs to be a little phone booth there to where before yeah. you even go past this point, call your friends, yeah, call the specialists, call the people that know, because mm-hmm. I'm an animal trainer, right? I'm no. I apply the science of behavior change, but when I get into trouble, I call Susan. I yeah. call the behavior scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, what I tried to explain it, uh, the other day, it's like when your kid falls and skims his knee, you put a little bit of ointment on and you put a Band-Aid on it. But when the bone's exposed, you're not going to try to figure that out by yourself, right? Yeah. Oh, look, grab a couple sticks. I've seen this. Bear Grylls does this all the time. <laughs> you know, you don't do that stuff, but... That is an automatic, and sometimes when we have a behavior problem, it's not an automatic to go to the to the scientists and go help me out. What do we do? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And one of the things I'm excited about as I learn more about this world and the mm-hmm. resources that are out there is that there is kind of that step up that you can go to someone who mm-hmm. knows how to deal with the broken bone um, yep. in the in the behavior world. Um, and I think veterinary behaviorists have a mm-hmm. huge role in that too, which is mm-hmm. why that's something I want to do in the future because. There aren't that many of them, but I feel like they there's a big world there. There's a lot more we can learn in the veterinary behavior um, kind of field that would really help mm-hmm. out with situations like that. Yep. And it's cool because, you know, the, the medical science and the behavioral science, yeah. a lot of times they're not working together. Yeah. Like how many how many vet hospitals have a behavior office? Not that many. Not that exactly. many. <laughs> and, and I think that's a cool thing about it is there's a huge opportunity to do things together mm-hmm. because... If you have a medical problem, don't use the behavioral model to fix it. But if you have a behavioral model, don't use the medical model to fix it. And so if we can all work together. um, I was talking to my friend Sarah Duggar, who's in – trains dogs in in Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. And she says, what do you do? Because a lot of times when the dog gets to the vet hospital, it's usually a little late for a behavior person. You can do little things, but that's it. But how much better would it be to have a – 
uh, vet off after the visit and it didn't go great, you go, hey, stop into this office real quick and talk to our behavior person. So next time the animal comes back, he walks in, we can give him an injection and do all these things and yeah. work with work with him as well. And I think there is, Susan had some great examples and I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the vet that did this, but she said that um, she would send them to training classes. And if the dog passed or the dog or the cat passed the training classes, she would get a discount at the veterinary hospital. Mm -hmm. So the people get reinforced for using the behavior people. Yeah. And you can see an increase because you can imagine a vet, you know, we've all seen the, the pictures of a cat jumping out of a, a kennel and now she's all over the office. If that cat walked out station and you can give it injections to walk back in, close the door, that'd be much better for me too. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really cool. <laughs> cool. I have other like other topic questions, but do you want to ask anything about no, that? Go for it. Okay. No, You're making his job too easy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of that. <laughs> um so just jumping to a completely different topic. Mm -hmm. Um you were talking I don't remember what you were talking about before, but something about program animals and, mm -hmm. and teaching animals how to do programs. And I was wondering about um if you had any thoughts about um how consent behaviors play a role in that. Mm -hmm. Because I've been really interested in teaching consent behaviors, trying to teach consent behaviors to some of my patients, to my own pets. Um and it's just a useful way of kind of making sure that they're on the same page, that they're ready to mm -hmm. engage in certain things, especially stressful things that the vet office is mostly where I'm coming from. But I feel like there's a role for that too in bringing animals in front of people, in front of crowds, doing shows, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So I was just wondering if you had thoughts about yep. that. We'll start off by defining consent behaviors, and please. That. Oh, my word. <laughs> Me? <laughs> you know, in my mind, because I think that's a great point, right? Let's define what we're talking about. Because yeah. a lot of times that's, for me, that falls in that choice and control piece, right? How, yeah. do, how do you ask an animal, hey, do you want to come out and see all these people and hang out? And is that cool with you? Yeah. Right. That really is the the non-definition of what, what what I think we're we're talking about. And a lot of times that comes with a, a very complex answer because it has to do with motivation, has to do with the environment, has to do with relationship. It always has to do with environment. But, you know, it's it is it is the I can get a lion to jump through a flaming hoop if I get it hungry enough, right? Yeah. And so does did I have consent for the lion to go, yeah, I'm good, jumping through the hoop. So it comes with a skill level of the trainers, like how well are the trainers um, in, you know, how well do they apply to the science of behavior change? Um, how well is the environment set up? How is the animal trained? And so I don't always look for a yes and a no. Mm -hmm. But I I look for behaviors that tell me oh you know what we're not ready yet so yeah, like stress versus not or, yeah, yeah and and even even that like if I open the crate door and he doesn't come running down or he doesn't do his normal path into the crate or he hesitates going into crate one is I I I look at the antecedent arrangement the second thing is I look at the consequences have people been treating it how's the experience been in the crate so those things and then i look at the experience itself you know does the is there enough reinforcers out in out into in the environment mm -hmm. and a lot of times the the animals that have learned to learn really quickly participate and they look forward to participation and so when they come towards me the vet i don't hide anything like sometimes yeah. we see in training that Oh, let's hide the syringe until it's the last thing. Yeah. We have them there. The vet techs, we have great techs. When I worked at the zoo, you know, Tess and Avery, those guys would come up anytime for any of those yeah. projects. And they just wanted to, they were there to help. And they, they, they were there. And so when the vet, when it came time for the injection, the tech was there. The tech would just do the injection and, 
everybody knew what was needed from each other. So it's about that next level as well. So, and consent is that like, if I have the tech there and the needle is out and, and the hyena doesn't want to come up, that's a hyena saying, I ain't ready yet. Yeah. You know, that was good English. I'm not ready. To be fair, hyena. I mean, I'm impressed I can speak any English. <laughs> and so what is it? So, so, so in its body language, it's already telling me no, yes or no. Right. Yeah. And I think it's about reading it. It's about making sure that we give the animal the choice to participate or not. And then we can go into all these huge discussions about true choice. You know, all the food comes from you or most of the food comes from you. Is there a true choice going on? Yeah. Um, there's some really cool, I think Ken Ramirez did some cool stuff at Shed to where the animal could get the same reinforcer for hitting a buoy or performing a behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's the same, like, you know, it's not like the animal can say yes or no. It just goes, well, I'll do this instead of that. And so yeah. I think there's a, a lot of really cool research out there about it. But I think through looking at their behavior, they have the choice and control. And when we, t- it's such a buzzword, right? It's you, it's, it's control through choices. Mm-hmm. That's how I imagine it. And Susan explained it well to me one day. And she said, to give more choices helps the animal control. And control is one of our primary reinforcers. We build yeah. for control in our environment. So you can, and your kid has to go to school. You can go, okay, wear those shoes, those pants, put that shirt on. I'll drive you to school. Or I can go, which one of these shoes do you want? Which pants do you want? What shirt do you want to wear? Do you want to take the bus or do you want me to drive you? Same behavior. There's not this like, you can do whatever you want. It's all about specific, like I got to get to a goal, but I can include more choices, which will give you more control in your environment. We still all get to the same spot, but we get to a point where we can all understand that there were there was better welfare in that second example than it was in the first one. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, as an example of like consent behavior mm-hmm. is what I have in mind, um, just for background, is like training a dog to put a, their chin in your palm while mm-hmm. you're doing a physical exam, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just a nice way to illustrate like the dog has the choice to at any point walk away. And then mm-hmm. if they want to come back, they can and they're getting reinforced for having their, you know, chin in the mm-hmm. hand or whatever. Um, so they know but they know that they can walk away at any time. And for program animals, I guess the equivalent is kind of just they have the choice to come out or not. Mm -hmm. And they know that if they're going to stay in their crate or stay in their enclosure or whatever, you're not going to go in and get them. Yep. Um, That kind of thing is what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great one. We've trained our our dogs, the the cheetah dogs, to put their chin on a chair. Yeah. So And then the the injections go on the the back of the head there and in the scruff of the neck, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, a lot of times in, in programs, they the animals just get to you know if they go in their crate or not if they come out or not if they wake up or not sometimes they want to stay asleep yeah um and then there's there's ways that we can help them make the right choices right and that's when some people will say oh you're just manipulating it's about arranging the environment for success so i would use i might not use like um oscar the um tamandua great guy he's awesome but we might, when we work with him, we might use some avocado as treats. And so that's the, the treats that he uses. He still gets his regular diet that would be helpful for him to, to keep healthful and be, you know, a lot of times overweight, which is not great. But And the avocado is a treat. The avocado is a treat. So he can come out for avocado. The day that he doesn't want to come out, he just misses the avocado. He doesn't, you know, there's a point where he doesn't get 
he still gets all his food and all that stuff. So yeah. a lot of times people think that that's, it's very restricting of diet. A, there's a whole list of things we go through before we even start restricting the diet. And it's about the presentation of the food and their, their healthy diet. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think I remember we talked about this a little bit before um, that you can kind of control that motivation level by mm -hmm. restricting the diet to a certain extent. Yep. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about before with that scale of there's a point at which it mm -hmm. becomes aversive to not have food, obviously. Yep. Um, but if you're kind of in that zone in the middle somewhere, mm -hmm. it can be a useful tool as well. Right. It goes both ways, right? Too little food is not good and too much yeah. food is also not good. If you yeah. get overweight, a lot of times I think my personal opinion in zoos, animals are overweight. Yeah, pets do. And <laughs> Exactly. And so I think that we can, we can help in that but we have to be skilled we have to be skilled in how to arrange that antecedent for motivation or not motivation right and i think it's the same thing we talked about with your pup you know what you did great in in the in, in if if you don't want him to run around the house while i'm here and doing all this stuff let's run him before i get here yeah run him around drain that you know, abolishing operation. It's you really draining the value of the reinforcer of running. And that sets up the environment without yeah. touching food or anything else that has already rearranged the environment for success. And now yeah. you can use your treats to treat them for staying on the floor and doing all the other good stuff. So yeah. I think there is that lineup of, you know, motivating with food. And I think there's so many other ways to motivate, you know, and especially with pets, you got scratches, you got, you know, other other reinforcers you can use to to really um, get some really cool behavior. And so before we even, even with our cheetahs, like our cheetahs get probably 100% of their food out of our hands. Mm -hmm. But if we give them more, they eat more. Yeah. And they would, and that wouldn't be a problem. But they would get overweight and that wouldn't be good on their bones and all their, 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 um, you know, their other physical stuff. So yeah, we're very much, and think about most animals that are being trained to level that, you know, we train, they go on a scale every day because it takes nothing, right? Yeah, you just yeah. send them out there once a week real quick. I remember them having 22 cheetahs in that building mm -hmm. and those guys in 15 minutes could weigh every single one of them. And yeah. they just write them down, send them up, go to scale, write it down. Just to keep another, not to manage their diets as much as it was to keep an eye on health and welfare. Yeah. And, you know, it was yeah. just another data point for us to look at. Yeah, yep. absolutely. It, it would make sense that cheetahs would be very fast to weigh because, you know, they're cheetahs. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Got to get in some bad jokes every once in a while. Oh, it's, it, it's hard because they don't always sit on the, on the scale. They kind of cheat sometimes. Oh, so good. Oh. So good. Um, and actually, that brings up a, a thing that I'm really curious about, mm -hmm. which is I know that you were heavily involved with setting up that whole area. Mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the coolest things at the Columbus Zoo, according to Zoe, who always makes me leave the red pandas <laughs> to go see it. Um, so talk to me about what went into that and like what goes into the cheetah run and the whole cheetah dog thing like that's all amazing man there is a lot that goes into that i think that the staff there makes it look so easy because they have put in so much time and they they've worked out all the 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 kinks right it just it's so it's so easy i remember the first summer it wasn't very easy at all and it was about the the great thing we are at right now is that the cheetahs that we got a lot of times came from, or a lot of times came from the SSP, Species Survival Plan, and they were singletons. They were animals that were not raised or mom wasn't raising anymore, or there, if there was more than one, it was somebody not taking care of them anymore. And so our department was very well known for raising them. And so 
we got those cheetahs and we raised them into making part of our ambassador program. And so there's a lot that goes into that just from when they're really little. The great thing about them being part of the cheetah run is when they were smaller, we could introduce them to the lure ball. And so that lure ball is around when they're about the size of the lure ball. And so it's really cute. But they get used to that lure ball and they get used to chasing it and they get used to working with it um, from a very young age. And then at that point, they become much more comfortable with the lure ball. When we started, we had cheetahs that never chased a lure at all, and they were adult. They'd grown up without it, to where when we first ran the lure, they ran the other way because they were just like, I'm not. This is very cheetah-like. They went the other direction. Right, they right. hissed at it, and they ran the other <laughs> way. And so we had to work with them to start you know, chasing the lure ball and all that stuff. So we've worked really hard on building a, a, a positive uh, relationship with the lure ball, changing lure ball. It was a whole process. And then the setup, you know, the setup of the lure machine, the running the machine is very difficult. It's it's a skill. So everybody that's running it has has learned to run it really well because that button, it doesn't just automatically, you push the button and it goes. You want to make sure that lure stays close to the animal's nose, but not so close they catch it and not so far that they get up. So if they run really well, their their head is kind of in line with their spine and they kind of just on it. And if you're too far, their head pops out and they kind of run like a horse, you know, <laughs> you know and they're like kind of gallop after it. And when they're too close, they have it in their mouth and then there's no running anymore. So we had to figure out how to run it, how to how we wanted to, to sweep around. Um, we've talked about running the other direction, but there really wasn't any need to um, to do it that way. And then the dogs. The dogs are just fantastic. A lot of times when we had a singleton, like Emmett, when he grew up by himself because, you know, the mom wasn't taking care of him. Cheetahs in the wild don't raise a single cub. So I think even in under human care, they don't raise a single cub. So they get pulled and then we take care of them. But we want to make sure they have a companion, right? And the dog is not with them 24-7. The dog is with them during the day. And then at night, the dogs get to be dogs. So they go home with keepers and they do all that other great stuff that makes them dogs. And so when you raise them together, that gives the cheetah and the dog a buddy. And then the cheetah will take the environmental cues from the dog. So when we used to go travel with Jack and we'd go to Bush Gardens and we would do a show there, but there's a roller coaster right over the top. That's something that is very, you know, not comfortable for the animals. Luckily, we took our animals everywhere. The cheetahs went everywhere all the time and they were reinforced for coming out of their crates. They got reinforced in new environments. So new, new environments change became normal. And that's what we do with all those program animals. We don't just all of a sudden take them to a school full of kids. They come with us at, at first. They spend some time looking around. We might not put them in the first program. We slowly but surely, those guys have so much skill to where they go. Okay, now they're ready. Now they're ready for the big for the big time. So same thing happens with the cheetah and the dog. Is the cheetah might look at the roller coaster that we don't always look at. And then the dog goes, oh, this is kind of cool. This is easy. And then walks up on stage and the cheetah goes, huh, you're good? Ah, oh, I guess I'm good too. And then they will feed off each other. Um, when we have them in hotel rooms, it's great to have the dog with them as a companion. It's just comfortable. They both lay, lay down and just are comfortable that way. And who knew that people would love to see the dogs running? Oh, yeah. I was the, the first one. That's the best. See, I, <laughs> my staff... When I was there, that was the, the thing I was like, I, I hated it. I was like, <laughs> you're here. We're here to watch cheetahs run. That's what you're here for. <laughs> exactly. And I, that's my bad, right? Because 
because one of our rules is the audience is always right, mm-hmm. right? And the audience is our is our guide. And so I was want to run two cheetahs and then they wanted to run a dog and we got huge responses out of the dog. Yeah. And so then we ended up running a dog every day because people liked it and we could tell the story. And again, it opened up that, that you know, touch the heart to teach the mind moment to where we could connect those uh, dogs to the Anatolian shepherds that CCF is using and uh, cheetah conservation, cheetah outreach is using uh, down in, in South Africa, helping save cheetahs out in the wild. Great connection. People love the dogs. And a dog, you can walk right up to the boardwalk and do an experience up there too. So lots of opportunities, which is just so cool to, to think about what it took to put it all together. Yeah. And those cheetahs shift about 150, 200 feet. They come from a building and they shift all that way down and they run around and shift all the way back up. So yeah, it's a pretty, pretty cool experience. Yeah. Yeah. That is really awesome. And um, speaking of the cheetahs at the zoo, um, can you talk about Dave and Adrian at all? Can I? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, because <laughs> you mean my kids? Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. and, and I will say that you know when Zoe was interning mm-hmm. at the zoo was when that was happening, and I spent a lot of time there, and I got some ridiculously good pictures uh-huh. of those two goobers. Um, and watching them grow up a little bit was mm-hmm. like magical, and I I can't wait to see them again as like real cheetahs now. Uh-huh. Like I know they are. I haven't seen them as adults, but that's it, it's just such a cool story. Mm-hmm. Dave and Adrian are just they are the coolest story because I think that is the ultimate. Like, it's the ultimate teamwork. It's almost like the teamwork, dream work. Like, I'd love to give everybody that was involved, a, you know, a trophy. Because it wasn't <laughs> just it wasn't just animal programs. It wasn't just only the vet staff. It wasn't just Columbus Zoo. But it was Smithsonian. And it was Columbus Zoo. And it was vet staff. And it was, we did the welfare study with OSU during it. And we did, and the animal training staff, the animal program staff. And then every, pretty much everybody at the Columbus Zoo, right? And it was such a cool, and the SSP, and Adrian, and yeah. it was unbelievable, all the, the the different moving parts that were there. And, you know, for, for the people that don't know, they're the first cheetah IVF transfer that has ever happened around the world. And so their dad, Slash, beautiful name, I love that, was at Fossil Rim in Australia, in, not in Australia, in, in uh, Texas. Texas. There yeah, you go. I got to meet him when I interned. There oh, that's cool. That's really cool. <laughs> and then uh, I got to get it right. I think BB is the mom who was in uh, Columbus. And then Izzy was the foster mom. So the eggs from BB were fertilized in a Petri dish and then moved into Izzy. And Izzy carried both Dave and Adrian as uh, to full term. And the, this process was successful for the first time ever. Mainly, this is what the scientists said, because the animals were very well trained, right? You think about every behavior of those females was trained, pretty much besides the implantation of the egg. But still, the injection that was done to, yeah. was done voluntarily. And so it was everything, ultrasounds and x-rays and blood draws and looking at hormone levels and all that stuff was all done voluntarily. To the point when we had to pull Dave and Adrian because Adrian wasn't growing at all, wasn't gaining weight. When we pulled her, we could get some milk from mom, which milk was never collected from a lactating female. So that was also a first. So Dave and Adrian, from that point on, you know, we introduced to Cash one of our our dogs, but he was they weren't um, that interested in each other, and so that's one of those instances that we just decided, you know, these guys are good with each other. We don't need another dog. So, 
they as far as I know, they're doing fantastic still, and they're they ran last year on the Cheetah Run, oh, and so yeah, cool. I know they're doing they're doing good. It's really important for young cheetahs to get a lot of exercise. The worst thing you can do is keep them confined. So you want to get them long runs and long places. So that's why you see us work the the really young ones a lot just to get them some exercise running around. So yeah. Um, so there was one other animal that I promised that I would ask about, mm-hmm. uh, which is Stevie Fox. And uh-huh. if, you, if you could talk about who Stevie is and just kind of share that story a little bit and, and just tell us about Stevie because we're madly in love. <laughs> like I was so, I'm not going to lie. When uh-huh. I found out that you left the zoo, uh-huh. I literally turned to Zoe and said, shit, <laughs> I was really hoping that Vowder would let us mm-hmm. meet Stevie. Like it was an honest uh-huh. goal is the word that I am going yeah. to use was to like meet this fox uh-huh. because this fox is the most amazing fox that has ever foxed. And um, <laughs> as you can see, Zoe is, is going into the closet there. We have our own stuffed Stevie Oh, fox my word. Oh, that's awesome. how can you not? So, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. So, you know, so Stevie. Stevie is an incredible fox, isn't she? She is just the most beautiful creature out there. And that habitat is so good for her, which is so, it was great. The habitats in that building are all designed to be uh, interchangeable. So if you look at them closely, there's a high element, a low element, a digging element. So we can rotate animals through. So, but Stevie, actually, I went to pick up Stevie because Stevie was found somewhere in southern Ohio, like an hour or two hours south of here. And I'm trying to remember where it was, and I don't. But she was um, she was a pet. So she somebody got her as a pet. And then she got out of the house, and one of the neighbors shot him. Shot her in the back end. So if you look at her closely, she has a, a, a light limp in the back. Right, right. And so then she disappeared into a garage, and they thought she wasn't going to make it. And then they had to get, I think, the little girl that was in the house that had him uh, to come get her. And she just came right up to her. She picked her up, and they took her to the to a vet hospital where they spent six weeks free care because the owners yeah. never came to, to pick her up. And so I know, big story. And um, and so they took care of her. They put her all back together, and then she went to a a, a, a I don't know what the right word for that is. Dog pound, like a, a, a kennel, a shelter. Yeah. Thank you. That's much better. My my English words are not as <laughs> as as widely. A shelter sounds great. Um, and so she was there with a bunch of dogs, and she looked really comfortable. And then you know they made the mistake of calling Susie, and Susie, you can't send Susie out to go pick up animals because she'll always come home with them. <laughs> and so we were just going to evaluate and all that stuff, and we went out there, and she was great. She sat in our laps and was mm-hmm. just we're like, this would be a great program animal and we could take her out of this environment of all these dogs barking and all that stuff which didn't look like bothered her much at all yeah which was a great indication to us that she would probably be great and so then we moved her from um then we picked her up and she ran right in the crate and closed the door and took her up to animal programs and actually not to animal programs she went to the hospital where um, Ellen trained her to do a voluntary injection so we can get her vaccinations done and then when it was time for her um, entrance exam we could just you know hand inject her and she was out so we could really check her out and then she's came down to the village and they started working with her and i don't know what they're doing currently but you know we had big pro- big problems big um ideas about teaching her how to do sound location so she would go find sounds and look for other things but yeah she's really cool and she can help me be out in the snow which is just so nice when she's out there so yeah 
Yeah, yeah. One of the coolest and most beautiful animals. Just if you ever get to the Columbus Zoo, um, go to AEV and and just just ask if you don't see Stevie mm-hmm. because they'll um, call her. Call her and, <laughs> yeah. and she is she is just the most beautiful fox. Um, she's a red fox, but she's not you know red. She's a um, silver fox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. silver. Silver's like yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a red fox with that, that is silver. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, and then I guess my last question as far as all the training stuff is, can you just tell me the story of what you think is one of your biggest training wins? Huh. That's a great question. I never really – you know, I don't really think about it as a, like a win. I think it's it's like um, – I like thinking about growing up teams, growing up teams that grow up and continue to grow on their own. So – I just, I like looking back and looking into Wake and seeing all programs still running that are being successful. They're making smart smart decisions that are, are doing, like Columbus right now, you know? Those guys are continue on the programs that continue on the, the knowledge they have and they use it and they use it smartly. And if they don't get it, they'll go find it somewhere else. And they'll, they're, they're, it's just a growth in the industry, I think is what I, I like to see. So, you know, Shine Mountain is a wonderful place. It has a beautiful training program, and you know, you it's it, so for me, it's not like one one triumph. I'm like, oh, I can't wait. You know, I I there's hundreds of stories of people that when you walk in, they don't want to do any training, and then when you leave, they they you can't get them off of you <laughs> because they're they've learned so much, and it's really investing into staff more than it is. You know, I don't see it as my triumph. If they're being successful, then they did that. And so I was just there to facilitate. I was the catalyst. That's really would be the idea. Yeah. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, is there anything else that you want to say about any of this and especially about your company? No, I think I think it's cool. I think it's there's so much going on. And I think we're just going to continue moving, moving the bar and laying it higher and higher. And, uh, you know, just getting people to train animals to really help us increase welfare and i think it's just it's about learning and teaching and i think if we invest in our staff then they're going to be more invested in our industry and they're going to get more out of it than just cleaning and feeding very cool uh Mm -hmm. any conservation organizations you'd like to give a shout out to you know usually it's cheetah conservation fund ccf um lately i've been working with the uh save giraffes now which is a cool organization that works on uh, giraffe transfers and stuff. We're talking a little bit about um, doing some possible training out in Africa, how we could train natural, natural, um, you know, giraffes that are out in the natural habitat to move certain directions. So they they will participate instead of having to grab them up and move them other places. They would do it on their own without any people involved. So wow. they're cool. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so that's a Save Giraffes Now has has been one that you know I think is a great organization that is trying to move that that uh, that bar up higher than it's been. So yeah, that's interesting. You're actually the second person who's uh, recommended them to me recently, and you're uh, you're friends with the first. So uh-huh. that's, yeah, that's I, yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think my my friend introduced me to to the organization. That would so make yeah. Sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And then it is time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show, but there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, "Oh no!" It's time for the Rossipari poop story. Ah, uh, it's a. I'm I'm trying to think while I was sitting here, and you're wearing the sweatshirt too. I'm like, <laughs> man, I I there's there is so many um, 
poop stories poop story out there. I think a lot of like I think back of my bird training days where you're you're working and you're um, you have a hawk on your glove and somebody forgot to take the chick heads off the chicks mm -hmm. and the hawk bites into the um, into the little brain and the <laughs> the brain juice comes squirting out into your mouth while you're talking. That's probably it's not poop, but it close. It, it, it's, it, works. it works. It works for me, but yeah, that's usually where my mind goes. And you're like, oh yeah, that's why we don't use heads on stage. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the general rule. So yeah. All right, so friends, if you've taken nothing else from this interview, <laughs> do not use heads on stage. I will tell you that as a professional drummer, yeah. same rule. We never just bring random heads out on stage. Yes. So, uh, good. Yeah, fair, fair. Good, good, good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Anytime. I had a great time. Thank you. Oh, that was so much fun. Did you hear at the end when Fowder said that he had such a great time? I'm 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 very happy about that. I hope he meant it because I had a great time. Uh and I'll tell you what, sitting and listening to Vowder and Zoe just talking about that stuff was awesome. Uh, I also wanted to say real quickly that uh, I did, in fact, recently get to see Dave and Adrian run at the Columbus Zoo. They're all like adult cheetah-y now, and it's just so crazy to see these little former, you know, cheetah cubs doing the big adult thing. I, 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 I understand logically that's how that works, but they were so cute and small, but also so special and so unique. And and now they're just, you know, Cheetah's Jason Lores. It's it's amazing to see. It's so cool. So uh, I would like to say thank you to Vowder for participating in this. And um, if you're interested in checking out more about what he does, you can go to behavior360.com. Uh, he also has an Instagram at behavior360, but he's never posted there. So yeah, I don't know what to tell you about that. Um, but I cannot wait to see the impact that Behavior 360 has on uh, the zoo community because, um, like I mentioned in the interview, every keeper I talk to that knows Vowder uh, is just obsessed. Uh, as a matter of fact, the sheer number of people who told me they're really excited when I mentioned that this episode was coming up because they know and love and respect Vowder, it's, it's a good roster. It is a group of people that you want to be excited about you. So make sure you're back here on Friday for the season finale of Rasafari Zoo News, which, as I said in the intro, really means nothing. Um, and uh, also, thank you to my Red Panda level patron, Laura Shank. You rock. So I guess the last thing I have to say is actually two things. Remember, when you go out there in the world, touch the heart and teach the mind. And also, the word credits backwards is Steiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.